Good morning. It's good to see all of you. And um, as Dave said earlier, we're glad to have all of you who have joined us here in person this morning. All of those who have joined us online, we're grateful for your attendance this morning as well. And we are just glad to be able to, to worship the Lord together. If you've got your Bibles with you, and I certainly hope that you do, please take them out and turn with me to Luke's Gospel, chapter 10. Luke, chapter 10. You know, a number of years ago, I read a book about a Lutheran minister who was also a U.S. Army chaplain. And he served in Germany during World War II and in the year or so after the end of the war. And he was offered an opportunity to spend another year following the war, uh, still in Germany, ministering to the senior Nazi officials who had served directly underneath Adolf Hitler who these same officials had been convicted during the Nuremberg trials for being the architects of the Holocaust. His story is in, it comes in, the, in a book entitled Mission at Nuremberg. And this chaplain named Henry Gorecki was, was faced with a decision. The author Tim Townsend says this, the decision was to accept the assignment and it was not an easy decision. He says he wondered, Grecki wondered how he could make any impression on the disciples of Adolf Hitler. Would his considerable faith in the core principles of Christianity sustain him as he ministered to monsters? He'd taken several trips to Dachau. He'd seen the raw aftermath of the Holocaust. He had touched the inside of the camp's walls and his hands had come away smeared with blood. Now the U.S. Army was asking him to kneel down with the architects of the Holocaust and calm their spirits as they answered for their crimes in front of the world. With those images of Dachau fresh in his memory, Gorecki had to decide if he could share his faith, the thing he held most dear in life, with the men who had given the orders to construct such a place. Well, Henry Gorecki did accept those orders. And the book written about him goes on to describe what his experiences were like as he ministered to those prisoners there at Nuremberg. And quite honestly, as a preacher, I am struck by the sheer weight of the responsibility and the ramifications of the decision that Henry Gorecki had to make. How could... How could he take such an assignment? But really, the bigger question is really this. Would I take such an assignment? Would I be willing to minister to Nazi war criminals? You know, for many of us in this room, World War II seems forever ago. Eighty years or so has produced generations for whom a world at war is really only a a thing we've read about. But the question is still a valid question. Who in the world today would I be challenged to go and minister to? Maybe it's the nationality of people. Maybe, maybe it's folks of a particular religion. Maybe it's people who embrace a different lifestyle than me. Quite honestly, there are some in this world today that I would be very quick to go and minister to and provide aid. But who are the ones that caused me to stop and question my assignment? 
Today, as we turn our attention to Luke chapter 10, we are going to encounter an interchange between a lawyer and the Lord Jesus in which that question comes straight at us. It is a question that lies at the heart of of a parable that Jesus told, a parable that all of us are somewhat familiar with, if only because of its name, the parable of the Good Samaritan. But before we get to the parable and to the difficult question that it raises and requires us to answer, we have to consider the context into which the parable was told. In fact, apart from the context, well, we might miss the real point of the parable. The context of the parable of the Good Samaritan is a discussion of what is required or what is necessary for one to inherit eternal life. And it is that subject and the discussion of it that has real implications for every single person in this room today. So let's consider this passage together. Let's read it, think about it, and consider both the theological and the practical applications of this passage to our lives. We're going to begin reading in Luke chapter 10, verse 25. Hear the word of God this morning. Luke says, And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him, that is Jesus. And he said, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? What is your reading of it? So he answered and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your strength and all of your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered rightly. Do this and you will live. But he wanting to justify himself said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Then Jesus answered and said, a certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a certain priest came down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite, when he arrived at the place, came and looked and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. So he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. On the next day when he departed, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper and said to him, take care of him and whatever more you spend when I come again, I will repay you. So which of these three do you think was a neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? And he said, he who showed mercy on him. Then Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for loving us like you do. Thank you for just being so good and gracious and kind to us. People who don't deserve it, but whom you have been patient with. You have loved on us and you have cared for us and you have stuck by us when we have run away from you so many times. Father, as we open your word and we come to it today, we realize that we are unworthy of the grace and the mercy you have shown us. And yet, because we are beneficial, we have benefited from it, we we are able to open your scriptures and hear you speak to us, to know that we can have a relationship with you, a deep and abiding relationship, one that transcends just our circumstances but goes all the way to eternity. And eternity is at the heart of what we're talking about 
So God, give us ears to hear and a heart to understand the truth of your word as you through your Holy Spirit speak to us. I pray that we would be found faithful. And I pray that we would be the people that you desire for us to be who have been impacted by your word. We pray these things in Christ's name. Now, I want to say to you right up front that there is an awful lot that's going on in this passage that I have just read for you. Um, While many of us are familiar with the text of the Good Samaritan, many forget its context. But this passage begins, as I read for you, with Luke telling us that there was a certain lawyer who stood up whose purpose was to test Jesus. And he tested Jesus in this way by saying, what What shall I do to inherit eternal life? And I want you to know this question is the first of four explicit questions that that arise out of our text. And it is those, those questions, those explicit questions that really form for us the hooks that I want us to think about this morning. And so I've just kind of given you some, some hooks for us to hang our thoughts on based upon these questions. And the first question that, that is asked there leads us to this hook. And this is the first thing I want you to see. Based upon that question there in verse 25, we see this. We find an insincere but an incredibly important inquiry. This question that the lawyer asked, it's an insincere question, but it is incredibly important. This lawyer comes and he wants to know what he must do to inherit eternal life. But the text makes it obvious that the, that the lawyer was not sincere in the question that he asked. He obviously believed himself to be smart and witty. So, so we're told that he went to test Jesus. Now, in Israel, to be a lawyer was to be an expert in God's law. This man would have no doubt been considered a biblical theologian and scholar. And no doubt he was very learned. He had a very sharp mind. But his intent was to trap Jesus in some way. That's the whole understanding and the emphasis behind the word test. He was going to try to twist Jesus up in his own words so that he could discredit him publicly. Now, to do that, the lawyer addresses a matter of supreme importance, eternal life. Now, in all honesty, what could be more important than to know the way to everlasting life? When we talk about eternal life, really what we're talking about is, is, is heaven. We're talking about what, how we spend eternity in the presence of God where we will enjoy peace and, and joy and, and hope and health and safety forever and ever. What could be more important than that? In fact, J.C. Ryle, he once wrote of, wrote of this question. He says, it deserves the principal attention of every man, woman, and child on earth. We are all sinners, dying sinners, and sinners going to be judged after death. So how shall our sins be pardoned? How shall we come before God? How shall we escape condemnation in hell? How shall we flee from wrath to come? We must, what must we do to be saved? These are inquiries which people of every rank ought to put themselves through and never rest until they find an answer. Unfortunately, for many people, those are the questions that no one ever wants to ask. You see, because we don't typically think of ourselves as sinners in need of being pardoned and in need of being delivered from God's wrath, 
In fact, we much prefer ourselves to think of ourselves as being good people who deserve it better than we have it. Because that's the case, the questions that typically burn in our minds are much more focused on the present and upon our own comforts and upon our own desires. How can we make our lives in the here and now better? Unfortunately, eternal life and the assurance of that is not top priority for many. So this lawyer, as we see, has asked an incredibly important question. But as we've already seen, and as important as it was, he was asking it out of a wrong heart. He wanted to test Jesus, so we know that he did not believe fully in who Jesus was. That's the first thing. But then there's another problem with the question we should know. It's the way he phrased it. The lawyer wanted to know what he could do to inherit eternal life. It should be pointed out that an inheritance is something that is granted to one as a gift. One does not do anything to gain an inheritance. Yet based upon this question, the lawyer assumed that his salvation was something that could come to him as a result of his work. God, on the other hand, does not share that assumption. In fact, the message of the scriptures is that eternal life is a gift. It is not a wage that is paid to someone who earns it. The only wage that you and I will ever earn is the one that we rightfully deserve. It is death because of our sin. But as Paul tells us in the book of Romans, the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. We are saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Our salvation does not come based upon anything we do, but comes based upon our faith and our confidence in what Jesus Christ has done. And the lawyer was about to learn that, but he was going to learn it the hard way. In fact, I love what one commentator wrote with regard to this passage. He says there are two tips that we can learn from this passage. The first one is this, never play games with the most important question in the universe. That's the first tip. Second tip is this. If you're ever going to test Jesus, do it sitting down. Not standing up as this lawyer did. That way you won't have as far to fall when you fail. Notice that, notice that Jesus happily engages this lawyer. And, and he does it by asking a question of his own. This is the second implicit question or explicit question that we find in the, in the passage. And it leads me to the second hook. We've seen the first hook, the question asked by, by the, the lawyer. The second hook is what we see there in verse 26. And Jesus, we see here, is turning the tables. He's turning the tables on the lawyer. Notice how he responds with his own question. He says, what is written in the law? What is your reading of it? Now, I think it's very important to see what Jesus is doing here. You see, in answering the most important question that could possibly be asked, Jesus turns this lawyer's attention back to the Bible. In his response, Jesus makes it clear that the Bible is the rule of faith for us and is the rule of our practice. It is where we turn to to find out the most important answers to the questions that burn within our hearts. We're not to turn elsewhere. We're not looking for something over there or something back over this way. We go back to the scriptures. Jesus says, what do you read in the old, what do you read in the Bible? Tell me, tell me you read the law. What do you read from it? 
Again, I like to quote J.C. Ryle here. He says, it is of no consequence what a human being says about religion. The question is, is it in the Bible? Can it be proved by the Bible? If not, it's not to be believed. It doesn't matter how beautiful and clever sermons and religious books may seem to be. Do they deviate at all from Scripture? If they do, they are of no good as guides. What does the Scripture say? That is the only rule and the only yardstick to use as a measure of religious truth. So Jesus turns this lawyer back to the Bible. He comes him back to the Old Testament. And he asks him, what do you know? What do you, how do you read the Scriptures? You want to know what you must do to inherit eternal life? What do the Scriptures say? And so... The lawyer responds in Deuteronomy 6, verse 4 and 5. He was obviously a smart lawyer. He says, well, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength and all your mind. And then he quoted from Leviticus 19, verse 18, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, I want you to know that's an excellent response. In fact, it was the exact same response that Jesus gave to a Sadducee over in Matthew chapter 22 when a Sadducee asked Jesus, what's the most important commandment? Jesus gave him the exact same response, quoted from Deuteronomy 6 and from Leviticus 9. The lawyer was a smart lawyer. He knew what to do. He knew what to say. And Jesus commended him for it. He says, you have answered rightly. But then notice what Jesus says. Do this, and you shall live. In other words, he tells the lawyer, all you have to do, all anyone has to do, is to keep the two great commandments by loving God and loving your neighbor. If you do this, and you keep on doing it, then you'll gain eternal life. But while that sounds easy enough to say, it's, it's incredibly difficult to do. And therein lies the problem. You see, the love that God requires is a perfect love. It's not just once, but it's all the time. And to love God truly with heart, soul, mind, and strength is to love him with every ounce of every part of your being all the time for all eternity. To love your neighbor as yourself means to love them with the intensity of the same love with which you love yourself. And you are to do that all the time, every opportunity. That's how you're supposed to respond without fail. But I won't ask you to raise your hand, but who of us has ever done that? I've got my hands tied behind my back. Who of us has loved God with every part of us? Who of us has loved our neighbor to the complete nth degree the way that we're supposed to? Who? See, this is where the, Jesus turns the tables on the lawyer. The lawyer was trying to catch Jesus in his own words so that he could test him. Jesus, in turn, tests the lawyer and catches him. Jesus affirms that the law's requirement for how we are supposed to live and inherit eternal life is exactly what the lawyer says. And he says, do that and you will live. But the lawyer is faced with exactly what you and I are faced with. I've not lived that way. I can't live that way. Can't you just see the blood drain out of his face? He starts shifting from one foot to the other, and he's backing up, and he's trying to figure out how he can approach it again. He's been caught. Suddenly, he's face-to-face with the reality that if perfect obedience to the law is the way that you and I can live forever, then we are hopelessly and helplessly going to die guilty. If keeping the law perfectly 
is what is necessary to inherit eternal life, then you and I have a problem because not a one of us is capable of doing it. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us have broken God's law and as such, the impossibility of keeping the law perfectly means that no one could ever be saved, not because there's anything wrong with the law, but because there's something wrong with us. We are sinners with sinful natures. And consequently, the law is given in order to point us to the high demand of God's standard of perfection, which ultimately forces us to recognize that none of us can ever keep it perfectly, which then forces us to realize that we need a Savior. We need something We need someone outside of us to do for us what we could never do. If I could put it more succinctly, I would say it this way. The impossibility of keeping the law perfectly necessitates that sinners like us must seek a Savior who is Jesus Christ the Lord. That is what such a recognition should do. But coming to grips with that fact that you and I cannot keep the law perfectly, well, that that does not always lead a person to Jesus. We talked about that last week as we were studying the passage there about how darkness is veiled over the eyes and they do not seek the one who is the light. As a matter of fact, they run away from him. This is exactly what we see here. You see, what this lawyer should have done in light of what Jesus had revealed to him was to fall on his face before Jesus Christ, the Savior, confess his sin and his inability to keep the law perfectly and acknowledge that Jesus was the Lord in the light of his life and to come to him in faith. That's what he should have done. But instead, he does something different. Notice, he asks another question. Verse 29, we see that this lawyer begins looking for a loophole. That's the third point that I want you to see on your outline. He's looking for a loophole. You know, so often when you're faced with with the reality of the fact that you can't do something that you really feel like, well, that, that, that standard's a little high. How can I bring that standard down and be able to manage it better? How can I redefine things in a such a way so that I can finally begin to see myself in that role? But when the standard is so high, so, so incredibly high as the law is and how God's standard is, we, we, we look at it and there's no way that I could ever live, live up to that. It's exactly what happens with the lawyer. So we ask this question in verse 29. Well, and who is my neighbor? He's looking for a loophole. You see, now embedded in this question is this belief that there were some people who fell outside the category of neighbor. There were people out there who were non-neighbors. It's fine as long as they fit inside the group, as long as they're inside the circle I can agree with you that I need to love my neighbor as I love myself. But those people that are not inside the circle, no, that that obviously can't be what you mean, Jesus. So how am I supposed to know who's on the outside and who's on the inside? That's the nature of the lawyer's question. But what I want you to know is rather than offering some sort of theoretical definition of the concept of nature of neighbor Jesus answers the lawyer's question by telling them a story and here's where we finally get to the parable of the good Samaritan the parable describes this man who's going down this road from Jerusalem to Jericho which was a very steep road in fact 
Jerusalem sits about 2,500 feet above sea level. Jericho sits about 17 miles away, 770 feet below sea level. So you can just imagine the steep severity of that drop. This road was also a very heavily traveled road. Many people lived in Jericho, but lots of priests and lots of Levites, as we'll see, lived in Jericho and went and, and did their priestly duties in Jerusalem and then went back and lived in Jericho. It was a beautiful little place, but the area between it, the 17 miles that marked the road between the two cities, was marked by a lot of rocky terrain, very, very dry, very arid, and, and very desolate. And it made for a perfect place for bandits to hang out, to catch people who were coming up and down that road, which is exactly what happens in this parable that Jesus tells. A man was going from Jerusalem back to Jericho, and it says that he fell among thieves. What that means is he was ambushed by robbers, by bandits who beat him within an inch of his life, stole his money, and left him for dead. And such a scenario was evidently more common than not, and people were always afraid of something like that happening. It wasn't some far-fetched story that Jesus was telling. It was a parable that had its roots in reality. But then Jesus tells us that a priest is leaving, evidently, from his duties at the temple, and he's going back to his home in Jericho. And as he goes down this road, he sees the man who has been beaten and left for dead. And instead of going and trying to help him, he sees the scenario he's in, and he walks around on the other side of the road as far away as he could and continues on. Then Jesus tells us that a Levite came along a little after. Levites were also heavily involved in the religious duties of the day. In fact, they assisted the priests in all of the activities that they engaged in there at the temple. They were considered the upper echelon of Jewish society, the religious elite. But the Levite, you notice, responded exactly the same way the priest did. He sees the man laying on the side of the road and he moves to the other side and continues on. Now, all kinds of reasons have been posited for why these men did what they did and behaved the way that they behaved. Perhaps they were very busy. Perhaps they were concerned about being defiled by touching what was potentially a dead man's body and they were worried about being able to continue on in their priestly and Levitical duties at that point. Maybe they were worried that if they stopped and helped the man that it was really a trap, that there were those bandits still hanging out to the right waiting to come in and pounce upon them. We don't know why they didn't stop and do what they did. All we know is is they left this man laying there and never lifted a finger to help him. Now, remember, the question that the lawyer asked was, who is my neighbor? Jesus has reinterpreted the question and actually redefined it and shot it back to him in a different way. Is actually defining for us what a neighbor actually is or is not. In fact, what we get here is a description in the first two men that walk down this road. We get a description of what a bad neighbor is. And you know what a bad neighbor is? A bad neighbor is someone who avoids people in obvious need and makes excuses for refusing to get involved and has little concern for those who are in trouble. That's a bad neighbor. And that's what Jesus has described for us in these first two men. I find it interesting that these two men that Jesus talks about are religious leaders. I find it convicting, to be honest with you, that Jesus took the religious elite of the day and used them as the example of what a bad neighbor is. I think it was intentional on his part, obviously. Strange to me, men who serve the Lord in some very specific and some pretty special ways are used by Jesus to demonstrate those who are bad neighbors. These men, these men were obviously men who walked away from the worship of God 
with hearts and hands that were as dirty as and hard as they had been when they, they came. It's amazing to think about it that way. And their example forces you and I to ask ourselves some pretty deep questions. What kind of neighbor am I? Am I willing to stop and help people that are in need? Or do I make all kinds of excuses for passing them by? Does the plight of others leave me unconcerned and unmoved? Now, in telling the story, what Jesus has done, very cleverly, he has set it up for an antitype to come along. He has, he has set it up for there to be some relief to the tension. This man needs help. Somebody's got to come along and help. He set it up for a hero to come. And you know the Jews who are listening to this, and this lawyer's listening to this, they're going, thankfully, at least the religious elite are not going to get the, the headline of the story. It's going to be just a regular old Joe, a regular old Jew that's going to come along, just a good old guy that's going to come along, and he's going to be the one that's going to help. That's how this story's going to end. Finally, we're going to get some airtime. Just the regular old Jews are going to get some airtime. That's exactly what they're thinking, except Jesus turns it again, and he says, no, the guy who comes down the road and helps is a Samaritan. Notice how differently this Samaritan responds than the priest and the Levite. This Samaritan's response is characterized by compassion. He had compassion. Literally in the Greek, the word that's used there means that his stomach began to roll within him. He was moved, moved with compassion over what he saw. Not only is his response characterized by compassion, it's characterized by contact. He went, he was not afraid to go and touch him. He went and picked him up, put him on his own animal, took him to an inn so that he could care for him, poured oil and wine on his wounds so that he could help him. His response is characterized also by cost. It cost him greatly to do what he did, to give to him what he did. And notice that the next day when he left and went on about his business, he told the innkeeper, I'm coming back. And if you have anything else that you do, here's two denarii. If you run into any more costs, I'll come back and reimburse you for that which you spend. Now, I want you to think about it. Jesus has already demonstrated for us what a bad neighbor is. But with the example of the Samaritan, we find the definition of what a good neighbor is. And a good neighbor, according to what Jesus tells us here, is someone who has compassion for people in need, someone who engages in practical deeds of mercy and kindness, even when it's inconvenient and even when it's costly. And a good neighbor is someone who refuses to draw artificial boundaries in order to avoid getting involved. That's what a good neighbor is. And I guarantee you, Jesus' hearers were shocked by what they had heard. After all, a Samaritan was the absolute last person on the face of the planet that they would have expected to fill that role. Jews hated Samaritans. Samaritans were considered half-breeds ever since the Assyrians had brought them in and, and brought foreigners in and allowed them to intermarry with Jews and they had started their own religion and they had had their own place to worship on Mount Gerizim as opposed to the, the Temple Mount and the whole thing was just Jews hated them. In fact, they wouldn't even say the word Samaritan without spitting on the ground. They despised them. There was no way. We call this the parable of the good Samaritan. The Jews would never say that because the word good and the word Samaritan did not go together in their vernacular. Yet notice what Jesus has done. He has told this story in such a way 
that the lawyer who wanted to reduce the demands of the law in order to make the law more manageable by asking Jesus to define for him who his neighbor was, well, Jesus has backed the lawyer into a corner. In fact, Jesus asked the final question of the passage there in verse 36, and it leads me to the final hook on your outline. Jesus has done, he has created a radical redefinition. And he does that, he does that by asking the lawyer this question, so which of the three? You've seen the priest, the Levite, and the Samaritan. Which of the three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among thieves? Just to demonstrate how absolutely horrible it felt for that lawyer at this moment. He couldn't even bring himself to say the Samaritan. He who showed mercy to him. He wouldn't even say the Samaritan. What I want you to know is that in this parable, we understand that love does not allow limits on the definition of neighbor. How the lawyer expected Jesus to define neighbor, perhaps he expected to define a neighbor as another Jew. Or maybe he expected Jesus to say, well, it's somebody who acts righteously. Or maybe he just expected Jesus to use some sort of useless term like saying, well, everybody's your neighbor. I don't know. What I do know is this. What Jesus did was was he forcefully destroyed any thought of putting boundaries on the extension of mercy and love to other people. Now, what that, that doesn't mean that boundaries don't exist. It does mean that an identity that grows out of Jesus' sense of being a neighbor obliterates any boundaries that close off compassion or permit racism or promote attitudes of superiority. As one writer has said, the central lesson of the parable of the Good Samaritan is that believers are called to show compassion to anyone who is in need. What that means is that as believers in Christ, we are called to love our neighbors, all of them. And when we do this, our lives demonstrate the love of God. So this passage, this, this, this passage began with a, a question regarding what one must do to inherit eternal life. And, it, and then it ended with Jesus defining for us what it means to be a good neighbor. And the question is, how are we supposed to synthesize all of that into something? And let me just say to you, Throughout 2,000 years of church history, it's been synthesized in a lot of ways. It's been taken out of context and stretched and stretched and moved to try to mean all kinds of things. Is there a unifying principle through it that, that unites all of it together? And if so, what is it? Well, this is how I've come to it. Remember that the lawyer is wanting to know what he can do to be saved. Jesus has directed him to what is written in the law, that if you love God with whole heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you love your neighbor as yourself, you will live. But knowing how difficult this was, the lawyer sought a way to soften the law so that it would be possible to keep. Jesus refused to go into that with him. Instead, he made it clear that loving your neighbor means costly sacrifices for anyone in need, including our enemies. And the reality of such a standard is, is really just too high for anyone to achieve. 
But just because it's too high for you to achieve does not mean that you're not responsible to it. What it does mean, what it does mean is that because I'm a failure at loving God and keeping his commands, I realize that I can never do enough to attain eternal life. And listen, therein is where the parable of the Good Samaritan and the context in which it is told points us to the gospel. And that's what leads me to my sermon in a sentence. My sermon in a sentence is this. Jesus Christ is the ultimate good neighbor who saves law-breaking sinners who are bad neighbors so that through his power we may become good neighbors who live our lives as witnesses for him. Consider this for just a moment. Can you read this account of the parable and not be reminded of the saving work of Jesus Christ? By our very natures, we are law-breaking sinners who make very bad neighbors. But as Philip Graham Rackin has written, Jesus came to our aid to give us life when we were not merely half dead, but completely dead in our trespasses and sins. He came out of his way, not just to cross the road. He left heaven's glory to come to earth. And he gained our salvation by it costing him all of the sufferings on the cross, the blood of his body, the agonies of his soul. Jesus traveled a much greater distance to help people in much greater need at a much greater cost. Brothers and sisters, we were the ones who were left for dead in our trespasses and sins, but Jesus came to rescue us. He came to heal us. He came to pay for our needs by his grace. And he freely gives to us that which we could never earn. And he gives hope for eternal life because of his perfect obedience to God and the sacrifice of his life. Who has loved God Almighty with all of his heart and with all of his soul and with all of his strength? Who has loved his neighbor as himself perfectly? Only Jesus Christ the righteous. And he has come to love you that exact way. Furthermore, I want you to know Jesus is equally committed to seeing our salvation through to the very end. He has promised that he will return for us and he will carry us all the way to glory. Now let me ask you, how can we read this passage and not be drawn to the Savior who has sacrificed himself for us? How? How can you not fall in love with somebody who has done this for you? If you truly understand your circumstances and your situation, if you understand yourself to be the one laying on the side of the road, dead in your trespasses and sins, and you know that Jesus Christ has come to save you, how can you not fall in love with him? How can you not be willing to give your life to him? How can you not be willing to sacrifice everything for him? That's the first thing. The second is this. If you have and you are in love with Jesus because of what he has done, then how can we read this passage and not be convicted of our own shortcomings and how we love others? We cannot sidestep based upon this passage the fact that 
Our relationship with God necessarily affects how we relate to our fellow man. This text motivates us to live out our witness among our neighbors, all of them, and to live our lives as a living sacrifice to those who are in need. And it is that, I believe, that ultimately motivated Henry Gorecki, that U.S. Army chaplain, because he did accept those orders that were given to him. And he took an assignment that was criticized by many. Gorecki's work toward befriending and witnessing to those Nazi criminals repelled many Americans. Yet Gorecki later wrote that he made himself available, listen, in order that the gospel be not hindered. Furthermore, he wrote, I was there as a representative of an all-loving father. And I recalled, too, that God loves sinners like me. These men must be told about the Savior bleeding, suffering, and dying on the cross for them. Jesus Christ is the ultimate good neighbor who saves law-breaking sinners who are by their very definition bad neighbors so that through the power of his life, we may become good neighbors who live our lives as witnesses in this dark world for him. Jesus finished that parable and looked at the, good, looked at the lawyer who, to whom he had just told the story. And he said to him, go and do likewise. Brothers and sisters, his command to the lawyer is the same one that he gives to us. Go and do likewise. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for loving us so much, for coming to us in our state of absolute death and darkness, giving us life, shining your light into our hearts, doing for us what we could never do for ourselves, paying the the price for, for everything for us, promising that one day you will bring us to glory with you. And Lord, sometimes we, we focus on that and our hearts are just overjoyed with the thought of the fact that you would love someone like me. Lord, you also very clearly put it in front of us that our responsibility is to, to love others. Sometimes those others are going to be very difficult for us to love. It's going to be hard for us to overcome the, the things that, that cause us to repel and, and the things that revolt, revolts us. And Lord, you've called us to be good neighbors. You've called us to share the good news of the gospel and to love as you have loved us. So my prayer today is, is that For those across this room listening, those who are online listening, that you would allow your Holy Spirit to speak to us. Some of us in this room today, I believe, that need to come to grips with the fact that apart from you, we have no hope. And that there are those that have never trusted in you, they've never humbled themselves before you and truly confessed you as Lord. There are many who are still trying to bear their own burdens. Father, my prayer today is that your Holy Spirit would convince them of their inability to do so and your love for them, that they would trust in you and they would follow you as their Lord and Savior. Others in this room are probably struggling in all other kinds of ways of how to love those around them. 
But I pray that your spirit would guide them and lead them and bring them to the place where they are able to do so. Because God, that's what you command us to do. So I ask as we leave this place today that we would go and do likewise. This is my prayer. I pray it in Christ's name. Amen.